Take your Bibles, go to Lamentations chapter 4 this morning. We're going to pretty much run through chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Lamentations. Um, I said it in the email that we sent out uh, yesterday, but I mean it. I am so appreciative of you and your stick to through Lamentations. I don't take offense when people are like, I cannot wait to get to Christmas. This has been depressing. Totally get it. <laughs> um, and selfishly, I'll just say that it's been super helpful to me. Um, and in fact, this morning's passage in particular... Um, and the turn that happens, and I'm, I'm going to try not to show all my cards before we get there, but, but, but the end of this is just it for me. It, 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 you'll see. I should stop. Okay, so, lament. Lament. You almost got the ADD experience where I told you the end of the story before I started the story, so that's a special. Um, lament. What we've talked about and defined lament as is the honest cry of the child of God who's living in the tension between pain and the promise of God, Right? So, so it's the, that honest cry. And I think, I think this morning what I want to make sure that we focus on is that the word tension is there. That tension has to exist in the life of the child of God. But we, we're Americans. We don't like tension, right? I mean, that's a westernized way of thinking. Tension. Remove all tension and just make everything happy, happy, joy, joy all the time and we'll be just fine. And so the tendency has been for churches and Christians in the last hundreds of years to skip over that tension. So something difficult happens, something hard happens, and instead of dwelling in it and experiencing the, the full breadth of care that God intends to show to you in the middle of your difficulty and pain, we jump right to, oh, but God works together all things for good to those who love him and are called according to And we, we miss that moment. So, so we skip the tension by jumping to the promises of God. But we also tend to skip the tension by moping and forgetting the promises of God. And so we've got to exist within that tension. And, and so as we get through the rest of chapter four, chapter five this morning, um, and then and after that, we've got two more weeks of lament to go. Um, a little bit different in approach though. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Habakkuk. That's a real name in the Bible, not one of those jokes. You make up a name and make everybody look for the book and they can't find it and it doesn't actually be. Habakkuk. Actually, and nobody believes me, Habakkuk is my favorite book in the Bible. It says a lot about me, actually. So next week, we're, we're going to run through the book of Habakkuk and, and show you the story of lament in his life. And so if you want to read that three chapters long, you want to read that this week and, and spend some time in that, I'd encourage you to do that. And the following week, we're going to hit another psalm. Um, but, but this week, we're going to do um, Lamentations 4 and 5. Last week, I encouraged you, might have even said I challenged you, to write your own lament. So how'd that go? Most of us forgot before we even got in the car. That's cool. Let me give you two words that are helpful in writing your own lament. We're going to find them in chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to look there. Those two words are remember and look. Remember and look. We start with that word remember. Look, Lord, remember. It's not look. I got it. Lord, remember. What has happened to us? And so what Jeremiah does all the way through chapter four, and we're gonna run through it very quickly, so, so get ready to read fast. Jeremiah takes a picture, a snapshot, and says this is the image of what was, and now here is the image of what 
is. And it's very, very different. And, and, and what he's doing in taking this picture is he's saying, now, in the area of what was, we were really comfortable with some things there. And now it's completely different. So look, look at verses 1 and 2. He says, we were really comfortable with our reputation. Chapter 4, verse 1, how the gold has become tarnished, the fine gold become dull. The stones of the temple lie scattered at the head of every street. Man, I am having a word day, aren't I? Zion's precious children, once worth their weight in pure gold, how they are regarded as clay jars, the work of the potter's hand. So, so what was once known for its magnificence is now known for its destruction and decay. He uses the word, so what was once this, this golden, incredible place is now just cold, hard, brittle clay jars. It's, he's comparing, I gotta read this because I'll mess it up, caraway or all clad or cuisine art, cooking things, pots and pans, there we go. <laughs> that is, I'm telling you, so I got 25 minutes left, this could be a ride, so I hope you're ready. You. So he's comparing like caraway and, and all clad and cuisine art, and he's, and he's saying, now, now instead of being those, those fine cooking utensils that once were, you are now disposable Tupperware. You were gold, and now you're just clay pots. We should just move on. Verse 3. Even jackals are offering their breasts to nurse their young, but my dear people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Now, that's a, that's a new insult to me. I don't know about you. I'm not used to calling people an, an ostrich. What he's saying is there was a season for us. As we look back at the picture of what was, we were known for our incredible morality and how we cared for our children. It was very uncommon in the time because all of the false gods, many of them required child sacrifice, but, but not the children uh, of God, not the, the Israelites. No, they were, children were a heritage, a gift from God, a joy to have. They were to be cared for. They were to be raised well. They were to be provided for. They were to be protected. And instead he says, no, no, now, now you guys are like ostriches. What does that mean? Well, ostriches are notorious for leaving their eggs unattended and defenseless in the wilderness. Verse five, he thinks about the, the way of life, the way it used to be. Those who used to eat delicacies are now destitute in the streets. Those who were reared in purple garments now huddle in trash heaps. They used to eat fine foods, drink fine wines, wear the latest and greatest clothing, and now they're homeless sleeping in a cardboard box. Number seven and eight. Her dignitaries were brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their appearance like lapis lazuli. Now, there was a word in my study I did not expect to come across. So, did a little study lapis lazuli. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stone. It's blue and sparkly and wonderful. Helps you understand the picture here. He's saying, our appearance used to be just magnificent. I mean, we were... We were healthy people. We were shining examples of God working through us. But now, verse 8, we appear darker than soot. Came and recognize us in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It's become like dry like wood. So they were good looking and beautiful in appearance. People took note when you walked by. And now people still take note when they walk by. But for a completely different reason. They were known for their strength. Verse 12. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or an adversary could possibly enter Jerusalem's gates. Jerusalem gates were the very picture of the impenetrable walls that the city was sitting behind. Nobody thought that they could possibly get into Jerusalem and overthrow them. But that's changed pretty dramatically. 
Verse 13. Yet it happened because of the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous within her. Blind, they stumbled in the streets defiled by this blood so that no one dared to touch their garments. Stay away, unclean, people shouted at them. Away, away, don't touch us. So they wandered aimlessly. So here you have the picture of the failure of their religion. A nation with a direct line to God through her prophets, through her priests. But along the way, the prophets stopped talking truth. They stopped sharing the word of God and instead shared what was convenient and popular for the people. So the prophets failed in their responsibilities. The priests became thieves. And now, now the ones who are actually supposed to be, and you remember we, we talked about the, the leper uh, a number of weeks ago, they would have to go to the priest to be declared clean or unclean. So the priests were like uh, the, the modern day medical official within, within the, the, the community, and they would come to the priest, he would say, sorry, you're unclean. Well now, those very ones, those medical officers who are supposed to be the ones who are declaring others clean or unclean or having others look at them and say, you're unclean. See the picture of what was, the picture of, of what is. Verse 17, all the while our eyes were failing as we looked in vain for help. We watched from our towers for a nation that would not save us. So the story of the overthrow of Jerusalem has in it the, uh, uh, the um, allegiance that Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry, Judah in Jerusalem would have made with Egypt. And so they were fully counting on the fact that when Babylon came and besieged the city, that at some point the Egyptian army would come and save them. And so the picture is they're looking out over their walls like, okay, where are they? Where are they? And, and if you read the story, Egypt came close, but not quite into Judah, enough to draw some of the Babylonian soldiers away, but not all of them, and it didn't actually help them. It didn't rescue them. See, they had been putting their hope, their trust in other nations to protect them. Time and time again, God, in his establishment of the children of Israel, of his holy nation, reminded them that their protection would only come from him. Stop looking to others. And then verse 20, the last one here in chapter 4. The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life, was captured in their traps. When we had said about this one, we will live under his protection among the nations. Who are they talking about? They're talking about their king. They're talking about this one who they thought would have given them legitimacy among all the other nations, the one who would lead them among the nations, the one who would stand up for the things that they wanted this king to stand up for. And he failed miserably. He let them down. In fact, when, he, when the, 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 the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, he tried to take off out the back door. And as he ran, he was chased down. He was captured. They captured his boys as well. King Zedekiah was then brought before the Babylonians. They brought his sons before him. And they tied his arms and made him look as they murdered his sons before him. And then they gouged his eyes out. So the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. We're going to continue in chapter 5 here in just a second. But contextually, you're going to notice a pretty stark change. If you're just reading chapter 4 and chapter 5, you're going to notice a change in style. Okay. Chapter 4 is that poetic acrostic where every verse begins with the next letter of the, of the, the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel. Okay. 
chapter five abandons the poetic acrostic of chapter four and moves to this intense scene of, of rapid fire, of staccato, of, of these bullet points, which is like one thing after another after another, where, where, where he's, he's communicating. Look, look, look with me. Look with me there at verse two. Um, our inheritance, it's been turned over to strangers, our houses to foreigners. We've been invaded by this, this other nation. We've been abandoned, verse three, orphans, fatherless, widows. Our economy's a mess. This is ironic, verse four. We must pay for the water we drink. Hmm, how about that? Um, our wood comes at a price. Yep, it does. We're pursued and tired. No one is offering us rest. They are exhausted. They're dependent on other nations for their food, making a treaty with Egypt and Assyria. Verse seven, they are being disciplined, the punishment of the sins of their forefathers. Verse eight, slaves are ruling over us and no one rescues us from them. What is that a picture? That's a picture of everything being upside down. Suddenly the slaves are in control. The basic deeds of everyday life have become the most dangerous. Verse nine, securing food at the risk of our lives as we go out into the wilderness. And then the, the results of malnutrition and dehydration in verse 10, our skin is hot as an oven from the ravages of hunger. With the assault of their women who have been raped in Zion. Princes in verse 12, hung up by their hands. Elders shown no respect. There's a great dishonor happening there. Verse 13, the young men laboring, the boys stumbling underneath the load of wood. There's such oppression that has met these people. Verse 15, joy has left our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. Aren't you glad you read that for your devotions this morning? You're like, I am ready for that all-staff meeting now. The cry of Jeremiah is, listen, as I look at what was and what is, and I see the huge change, well, what comes to me is this. Everything is gone. Everything is gone. There nothing remains. So although we relied on our reputation, our appearance, our morality, our way of life, our strength, our religion, our, uh, the human help of allies, a great political leader, even though we relied on all those things, Everything has been taken away. They have nothing left. Nothing. So that leads to a question that I need you to consider and wrestle with just for a moment this morning. And probably just a moment's the wrong way to say that. You're going to need to wrestle with this question and consider it for days. What about you? What happens if you lose everything? Everything. Except for God. What happens if your way of life is destroyed? Your bank account is empty. Your job's gone. Your family's murdered. What about you? If you've lost everything but God, is that enough? It's not an easy question. So I'm thankful none of you are like, yup, move along. I'm glad you didn't do that. I think some of you have lost everything but God. 
I think it's one of those moments we talked about a few weeks ago. It's the, the dad of the, uh, the son who, who was having, who was demon-possessed and was having all these um, convulsions. It's, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief though. Because I believe, I believe everything's gone. If, if everything's gone, all the things, the people, the dreams that matter most to me, if those are all taken, I believe that God is enough. But man, I need help believing that. Right? I think one of the lessons that we can take out of this passage is, is the fact that, um, and one pastor said it this way, our hearts are idol-producing factories. We can take the blessings of God, the grace-filled gifts of God, and we can turn those gifts that he's given to us into little g gods, into idols. When I say idols, I don't mean little images in your backyard that you burn incense to at sunset. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to use a definition from Tim Keller, um, pastor in New York City. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. But his definition of an idol is this. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Let me read that again. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Let me help you. Maybe identify some idols. There's three questions you can ask to try to find the idols in your life. What are the things that you daydream about? When nothing else is happening, nothing else is going on, your mind just effortlessly drifts there and captures your attention. Is it a, a better job? Relationships with a different person? Is it what you would do with the Powerball winnings? Where does your brain go all the pressure is off, and you have a moment just to sit. Where do you drift off to? That might be an idol. Second question, not only where do you daydream about, what do you spend your money on? What do you spend your money on? Well, promise, Frank, it's a worthless car. I have to spend a lot of money on it. It ain't no idol, though. No, I think our idols tend to be our kids, our clothing, certain status symbols. Check your checkbook. You, nobody uses a checkbook anymore. Go online and look at your thing. That's one way you can help identify an idol. So not only what do you daydream about or what you spend your money on, but finally, how do you respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes about something? And if, I, if I go to God and, and I'm, I'm asking him and I'm begging him and I'm asking him and I'm imploring him and I'm weeping and I'm, I'm truly lamenting over this thing and I am bringing it to him and I keep bringing it to, to him and, and, and I don't get it. Okay, so I might become sad, I might be disappointed, but, but then I get up, I move on. Life's not over, I just didn't get what I wanted. Okay, that's, that's, that's not, probably not an idol. 
But if you do that, I'm, I'm bringing all these things to him. I'm, I'm begging him. I'm lamenting. I'm, I'm dumping this at his feet. I'm praying over it. I'm working for it. And then you don't get it, and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair. You may have found your real God. Some of what God was doing with his children here in Lamentations is removing those idols from their lives. So let me encourage you. Lament allows you the opportunity to examine to see if it's become an idol. You, you, you can't continue to allow anything to contend with God for the glory that only belongs to him. If you, if you give the glory to something other than him, if you begin to worship something other than God, it's only gonna bring you heartache and sorrow and discouragement. And, and anybody or anything that you worship in that way, you are going to destroy it. You're going to crush it. That's the problem with, with our Instagram society. That's the problem with our, 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 our um, celebrity culture. Is we take these people who were not created to be gods and we elevate to the place of God and then we worship them and when they don't do what we want them to do, we have to destroy them so we can set up another god. And even worse than that, not only your own heartache and destroying that other person, crushing that other person, you're offending a holy God who says he alone deserves the glory and he alone ultimately will receive the glory. He is jealous for you to give him the glory. He is zealous for that glory. Only he deserves that glory and we need to give it to him. He's not going to allow his child to continue to run and play and, and dance with things that are not him. So he'll bring his discipline into your life. Now, yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, but there is discipline. I will not ultimately reject my child, but I will discipline them if they try to run into the street. See, God sees where we're headed. He knows what is just, he knows what is best, but he also knows what is good for us, even if we think otherwise. If you're contending with God for his glory, or if you're giving that glory and adoration to, to another, you, you have a problem with God. And as I heard this week at a, at a conference we were at, if you have a problem with God, God's your only solution. And how, how broken are these people? How, how hard to have God be the one who's, who's chasing you down. And, and, and what it does is it creates in you not only the desire but it makes you aware of the need to make the turn and come towards God with humility. That's what that second word in chapter five, verse one is. The first was remember what has happened to us. Take, take the picture. And I, and I do, I wanna encourage you, as you're writing your lament, take the picture. Take, this is what we had, and this is what it's become. This is what I had, this is what, to take that picture, but then move and take the turn, make the turn towards God here in verse one, where not only remember what has happened to us, but then look and see our disgrace. That's an odd request, isn't it? God, see us in all of our ugliness. See our disgrace. That word means shame. It means sorrow. But that's exactly, exactly how you should approach God in the middle of your hurt and heartache. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. The crown has fallen from our head. Just stop there. As I look 
all of the things around me, and I establish the opportunity because God has removed these things from my life to look in and find these idols. What I realize is the crown is no longer, I'm not wearing it. It has fallen from my head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Hmm. Again, if you're first time here this morning in the lament series, you're like, what? Every sorrow and loss is sin? No. No, we've said it before. Not every sadness, not every loss, not every difficulty is a result of your personal sin. Okay? Sin is in the world. It has broken everything, and we live in this sinful place, so you're bound to get some on you. Okay? So, so that's part of the difficulty, part of the loss, part of the things. And other people's sin, and their sinful choices can affect us with loss and sorrow and, and sadness. So, so, so not every loss has to do with your own personal sin, but while not every loss has to do with your own personal sin, many do. And here in verse 16 is the admission of that sin. Again, if God is your problem, God is your only solution. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Look at verse 19. Here's a confession of God's place in your world, in your life, in your pain even. You, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. This, this, that verse, that's right there. Right there, it's most basic. It's saying, God, you are the king of glory. No one else is, and I certainly am not. You are the king of glory. You, you are, are the God of what we talked about last week, Lamentations 3. Verse 21, yet I call this to mind, therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, you, you are the, 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 the enthroned forever. You are the Lord ever, over everything. We have this, this single hope that God doesn't forget us and that God is always able to keep being God. You're sovereign. You're right. Everything's upside down, and yet, God, you are still God. And be thankful that God's control isn't limited or eliminated just because pain is real. No matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, every night you can put your head on the pillow and say, God, I am trusting you've got this right now, because I certainly don't. Oh, but Frank, I thought, thought we said we weren't going to leap over the pain. I didn't think we were just going to go to, here's the quick fix. No, no, you're not. You're actually c- confessing on his character as God, his faithful mercy, his compassionate love. Even though, even though in the middle of your pain and agony, as you lay your head on the pillow, and it's like, you know, you know, there's still a tornado of activity happening over here, and you're laying down and say, God, I'm trusting you're still in control. The tornado doesn't necessarily stop. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20, verse 19. You, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Verse 20, why do you continually forget us and abandon us for our entire lives. See, again, going back to Daniel the Tiger, the great theologian of yesteryear, you can feel two things at once. God is sovereign. I still don't have answers. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? Verse 21. Lord, Bring us back to yourself so we may return. Renew our days as in former times. Unless you've completely rejected us or intensely angry at us. There's your hope. 
Ah. Question. Can you please reread verse 22? Because I don't see a lot of hope in that verse. God, please. So he's like, please bring us back yourself. We may return. Verse 22. Unless you've completely rejected us and you're intensely angry with us. <laughs> it's uncomfortable, isn't it? God, maybe, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the big one. This is the, this is that sin that they talk about that I can't come back from. Maybe, maybe God has turned his back on me now forever. Man, that, that verse right there. Think about what's been going on in Lamentations, right? We've read it all together. And you get to this last verse, 22, and, and, and there's, what a wild way to end the lament. He ends it with a verse that is open-ended, marked by insecurity, right? Unless, unless I don't have a hope, unless you've completely rejected me, unless you're just going to maintain your intense anger. I mean, there, there is this insecurity bubbling up. Man, I tell you what, and then, of course I do, because it's my, I love scripture. And you're all going to be like, what a nerd. Yes, I am. I love scripture for a lot of reasons, obviously. I love it because we have the chance to get to know God through it. God speaks through his word. This is his holy, inerrant, divine word. I love it. But I love its style. I love that each individual author that God superintended as he, as he inspired scripture, each individual author brings with them their own unique flair and flavor. So here you have Jeremiah like, everything's awful. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Let's talk about it. And then all of a sudden in, in chapter three, he's like, forget one verse for every letter. We're going to go with three verses for every letter. And then chapter four, we're going to go with one verse for every letter. And chapter five, he's like, and then he ends it by saying, Huh. Guess we'll never know. I, I love that. There is no happily ever after moment at the end of Lamentations. Just this incredibly subtle but poignant redirecting us as to where we're supposed to look in times of pain. Oh God, bring us back to yourself. Renew our days as in former times unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103 as I close. Psalm 103. Let me read verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5 one more time, and then I'll get to Psalm 103. Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. Renew our days as in former times, unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. God, are you intensely angry with us? Are you 
completely rejecting us? Well, the answer is absolutely not. And the answer comes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to every cause of pain. And I don't mean in the, if I just pray to Jesus, he'll take it all away. What I mean is this. Every sorrow, every tear, every loss shows us that we're living in this broken world and something has gone terribly wrong. But underneath the clouds of loss, in the shadows of lament, there is mercy. And that mercy has his name, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as a man. He was perfectly obedient. He was sinless. And then he died on the cross to provide the offer of reconciliation to sinners. They're they're hanging on the cross. Jesus, hanging on the cross, absorbed that, that full wrath of God for those who would trust in him. Listen, without question, that's the darkest day in history ever. But three days later, the empty tomb shouted that Jesus won. The empty tomb said that sin and death and evil is all going to be defeated someday. In the meantime, you and I live in the tension of pain and that promise of God, but in the meantime, we have a Savior. His name is Jesus. And because of what Jesus Christ did for us, you and I have the offer of redemption. If if God can do that in the darkest day in human history, give us the opportunity for redemption, how much more can he use hard times in your life? You are enthroned forever and ever, God. Great is your faithfulness. Could you pray with me? Father, thanks that we have a hope, that we have mercy, and we have been given the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time of communion to be able to reflect on that. Thank you that we are able to be reminded time and time again that that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ came and died for us. Now, Lord, I pray. I pray for those who are going through the cloudy moments, those who are stuck in the shadows, who are experiencing hurt and pain and, and dilemma, who have questions that don't seem to have any answers. Lord, I pray that they would rest in your sovereignty and the fact that you are in complete control and then rest in the fact that your love for them has been extended to them in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would rescue someone from the darkness this morning, whether that be crossing over from death to life by putting their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, or if it be allowing them to yield in this moment in their lament to you, admitting that you know exactly what it is you're doing. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen.